Good morning. Good morning. And it really is a good morning. If you, if you didn't get outside this weekend, it is your own fault and no one can help you because it was glorious out there. The weather was nice. I don't know if it's actually spring to stay or if it's Oklahoma spring, which means we'll get ice later, but it feels like spring and it was, it was pleasant. It was, uh, so you feel the sunshine on your skin and see life at work and the renewal of good things. So today we're going to talk about death uh, in response to that because that just seems like a natural follow-up to spring. Last week we talked about dying and uh, talked about it very seriously. And you might be tempted to ask why, just why, uh, why, why all of this seriousness and self-denial stuff? Why do we do that? not popular, it never has been popular as a discussion. It's way too close to home if you listen to what the Bible says about it, and it's uncomfortable. The churches that make a living making people feel comfortable avoid the topic of death. They talk about other things. Talk about living your best life now and all the rich blessings that you have in God and all the good and positive stuff, and it's spring all the time in that kind of preaching. But thing is, if you're going to teach what Jesus taught, we're going to have to talk about the cross. I don't know what season it was in Mark, the eighth chapter, but it has a moment in it that felt like spring where something really good had happened. Jesus had asked, who do the people say that I am? And of course, the answers are all wrong. Nobody really understands who Jesus is or what he's there to do. But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. It's a great confession. It's a good moment. It's a time when any sane preacher would have applauded and said, right on, let's talk about that for a while. Instead, the very verse that follows in Mark's gospel is Mark 8 and verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If you ever wonder why the disciples didn't anticipate the resurrection, because it's hard to listen to the end of that sentence. Before any talk of the resurrection was a whole lot of talk about death. And in Mark's gospel, he's quite clear that Jesus taught about death, about his own death. It wasn't just something that snuck up on him and happened to him. It is something that he taught. He taught his disciples that the cross was on its way. He taught them the significance of it, that the cross itself was not merely an event, That would be plenty, but it was also a way of living and dying that had its own significance. Well, we look at that verse and we say, well, it couldn't possibly mean that. In fact, if you get some good commentaries on Mark, uh, or some bad commentaries on Mark, uh, they'll be quick to say, you know, I may have been kind of vague or metaphorical. It's hard to imagine Jesus just blatantly telling his disciples that he was going to die. I mean, how do you have that conversation before it happens? Couldn't be what it meant. Mark anticipated all of our little maneuvers to make this a metaphorical discussion and follows it in verse 32 with these words, and he said this plainly. Dang. 
I was really hoping it was a metaphor. I was really hoping that somehow when he said he was going to die on the cross, he meant that in some vague existential sense, that psychologically he would die on the cross, or metaphorically he would die on the cross, or he would, he would have a really bad Thursday. Maybe that's all that it meant. And Mark said, no, he was, he was quite plain about it. Quite direct, quite serious. No way to get around it. He said he was going to die, and he taught it as part of his message. It wasn't just an event that took place in the story of Jesus. It was the message that he himself taught. The death of Jesus was not merely an event. It was an event. It was an important event. It was the important event. But it wasn't only that. It was also his message. It was connected to the way of life he taught. And so we don't think that way. When I say, tell me about Jesus, you might tell me that he died. Of course you did. The, The symbol of Christianity is a cross. Of course Jesus died. The event took place. But when I say, tell me what Jesus taught, you start listing off Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Turn the other cheek. Much more pleasant things. But what Mark is telling us, in amongst all that, he said all those things. He also taught the significance and meaning of his own death as a way of life. The disciples understandably reacted to this badly. Peter, who just a verse earlier had made the great and good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's the message of the cross and actually takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Bold Peter never lacks for boldness. Even willing to tell Jesus, you're just wrong about that. You can't be saying things like that. Do you see the the swing there? In one verse, Peter making the truest statement that could ever be made. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And two verses later, he says, Jesus, you're just wrong about that. That can't be the way it is. What happened in that verse in between? What happened to swing from, you're the Christ, I'll follow you anywhere, everything you say is true, to that can't possibly be right, that can't possibly be what it means. The sentence in between is Jesus telling them the message of the cross. And we are just like Peter. I'm quite convinced the Gospels record so much about Peter because we're all like him and that we need the opportunity to figure ourselves out a little bit. Peter is every one of us. He just says out loud what all of us are thinking. And then we can laugh at Peter and say, well, Peter didn't know. You were thinking it too, and you would have been if you were there, and you're still thinking it today. Anytime Christianity gets difficult or challenging, anytime Christianity tells us that there's some part of us that isn't the way it's supposed to be, or worse, there's some part of us that's wrong, Or worse, there's some part of us that needs repaired. Or worse, there's some part of us that just needs to die. We turn 180 from our faith and confidence in the message. When it's good news and blessings, we say, that's right, trusting God. When he says there's something wrong with you that has to die, we say, I don't know if I trust that God fellow anymore. And we run in the other direction. It hasn't changed. The cross and what it actually means remains today the part of Jesus' teaching we hate the most. Because it's not about living, at least not at the beginning. It's about dying, and nobody wants to talk about that. 
Certainly nobody wants to do it and what it might involve. Jesus responds with these words then, and you're just going to get whiplash in this passage if you're not careful. This is verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whiplash. A couple of verses earlier, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good job. Great confession. I'm going to die. Jesus, you can't possibly be right about that. Get behind me, Satan. From the good confession to that Satan talking in a matter of three verses. It's even worse if you read it in Matthew's account, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 18, when Peter says these words, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus responds, uh, not only is that true, you couldn't have said it unless heaven told you. A message from heaven itself followed by a message from hell. You ever feel like when you read, and I'm sure you've maybe stumbled on this passage before, ever feel like it's a little bit of a reaction? Just a little bit. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, I'd rather you didn't. And Jesus says, Satan. Satan talking. How often in conversation do you call someone Satan? Is that something you do very often? You know, we say some mean things to each other. My wife and I have lovely disagreements from time to time. It's rare that I say, that's Satan talking right there. It's not a good follow-up to any conversation, I promise you. You want to try it? Let me know how it goes. Report back. I've got a couch you can sleep on. It's just not, it's not something we say. It's, it's a severe overreaction in any ordinary conversation. That's Satan talking. It's, it's the equivalent uh, in our modern day when you disagree with somebody, you say, well, that's basically Hitler. That's what Hitler said, right? It's an extreme overreaction. That's Satan talking. What did Peter say that was so satanic? You aren't going to die. You shouldn't have to die. And if you're going to die, it's not going to be the leaders of our people that kill you. Could you just stop saying that it's crazy talk? And it's that message. Rejecting the cross is exactly the satanic choice that made the cross necessary. Jesus sees something deeper in that's harder to think about. But we've got to go there today. Peter just saw it as looking out for Jesus' well-being and just being sensible. Jesus says you don't understand. Talking like that is why I have to die. Because that's the way you think. It's that kind of thinking that is why I have to go to the cross. It's Satan's lie from the beginning that got us here. And now you're thinking it again. In different words, and Peter doesn't have a pitchfork, and he doesn't look very satanic, but he says the idea is the same one that got us into this mess. And so Jesus responds with these words. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Again, not even to leave well enough alone. If you're going to call somebody Satan, at least be nice enough to move on and change the subject. Now Jesus says, that's Satan talking. And then he says, hey, all of you come here a second. I want to repeat this. Not all of you got that message. Did you hear it when I said Peter was talking like Satan? I need to tell you more about that. And he calls attention to it. Peter had rebuked him privately. 
Jesus says, we need to talk about this publicly. And he begins to tell them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Crazy enough that Jesus said, I'm going to die on a cross. That was enough to make Peter say, stop saying that. But now Jesus goes further and says, not only am I going to die on a cross, you're going to have a cross as well. You have to have a cross. The cross is not just something that Jesus did for us. It's that too. I'm going to make it very clear. I don't want anyone to go home today and say, Ben said the cross wasn't on our behalf. Jesus didn't die for it. That's not what I said. It's not just that. Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Absolutely true. But it was also a way of life that he taught. And he taught that you were going to have a cross as well. And in fact, he taught, if you don't pick up this cross, whatever it means, whatever he's trying to say about it, if you don't choose the way of the cross, you can't follow Jesus. That there is no version of Christianity that does not include a cross for you personally, the disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist. Can I say that again? If anyone offers you a version of Christianity that does not include a cross for you, it is not the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and it is not Christian. The late, great Dallas Willard uh, liked to refer to the modern-day Christians as uh, spiritual vampires, which I thought was kind of funny. He said, you want to suck the blood out of Jesus so that you can live, but you don't want any more of him than that. You want what he's selling, but you don't want the price that he paid. The cross was not merely to save you. And again, I know that sounds strange. Isn't saving big enough? How do you say merely save? Isn't that the whole story? It wasn't just something done on your behalf. It was something done to show you how to live. He says, yes, I'm going to the cross. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm doing it for you. And there is a cross for you too. It was something that was supposed to not just be on behalf of your life, but in your life, to become your life, to change everything. And then perhaps the thought that we need to get into the next verse is that the cross was supposed to change us. That after you encounter a cross, nothing can be the same. How you live and how you die was supposed to be shaped by the cross. And so he follows with this line, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Anybody like riddles? Anybody dislike riddles? What's frustrating about riddle? It seems to say the opposite of what it says. And that's always a struggle. And Jesus now is talking in riddles, isn't he? If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You want to lose your life? You to have, I don't know, what is he saying? It seems to be opposite day. But the message that we covered last week and re- repeat again today is that what the cross teaches is that there's more life on the other side of this death than there ever was before. We think we live now and then die and the story ends. Jesus says if you understood what was going on, you'd know there is more life on the other side of death, on the other side of the cross, 
than anything you could imagine. Now and in the age to come, the cross teaches us something new about living as well as dying. And then the most memorable statement in the passage comes from verses 36 and 37. If you know any of this chapter, if you've heard it before, this is probably the one that will tickle your memory a little bit. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give and return for his soul? That's the one we remember. There's an old, old song. It's like a uh, L.O. Sanderson song, but... Uh, that puts this to music. It's way back. Uh, I remember singing it, and it was old then. Uh, It was very old. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Can we talk about that sentence just for a minute? And I want to start with the word soul. What, What do you think a soul is? Humans are picture thinkers, meaning that when I say something, when you have an idea, you probably have a picture in your head, okay? So if I say fruit, you don't think of the abstract quality of fruitiness. You think of a particular orange, apple, banana. Like you think of something. You see a picture in your head. When I say hot dog, apparently hungry. When I say hot dog, you don't think of the quality of hot dogginess. You think of a hot dog in a hot dog bun with mustard. Like you think you have an image in your head, okay, that you see. That's the way we say things. We see things. We think things that way. So when I say soul, you immediately go about trying to form an image of it in your head. And unfortunately, because soul's a complicated, it's not a hot dog. It's, because it's a complicated idea, the image you have in your, your head is probably bad. I'll just, just say that. Mine is. Absolutely. We tend to think of the soul as just another wispier version of me standing next to me. Like I've got this body and this is body bin, and then there's Casper bin over here, ghost bin, just a transparent version of bin, and that's my soul. And I kind of end up turning to myself into two people, like there's body bin, and then there's spirit bin, soul bin, and then someday body bin dies, but soul bin floats around in the aether somewhere, and then maybe they get put back together and it's complicated. And so you end up asking weird questions like, do you have a soul? Is it like something you possess? Is, is it something that uh, exists? Is it inside me, moving me around? Is my body like some kind of meat robot, like skin and bones, and the soul just operates me like a marionette? What does that word mean? And it's been unpopular through the years. If you go back, uh, we have tried to come up with different ways to talk about it that don't involve talking about it. Uh, Sigmund Freud, in at the century, turn of the 20th century, uh, didn't have any use for the soul as such. He said, no, I'm not going to talk about those old antiquated religious ideas. Well, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about uh, the, the real inner you. Your thoughts and feelings, your emotion, your deep-rooted trauma and identity deep down inside yourself. That sounds a lot like a soul. Oh, no, it's totally different. Well, what are we going to call this study? Psychology. Sounds like a Greek word. What does psyche mean? That's the Greek word for soul. Like just trying to avoid it, we came all the way back to, yeah, there's something inside of me that is thinking and feeling and doing and this little bundle of desires. Today we have a new word for it, if if I might say so. Today our fascination is with identity. 
We have this idea of identity politics or social identity or personal identity, racial identity, sexual identity, all the identities, okay? And I'm not against the word, it's a fine word, but if you ask somebody, tell me what an identity is, what are we going to talk about? Well, it's who I am inside, it's my thoughts, my feelings, things that lead to my action, it's the events of my life that transpire to make me who I am. You just said soul without using the word. When you look in the Bible, the word what we get soul from is this idea of the living you. It comes to us from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became, uh, in my ESV, a living creature. Or if you read the King James Bible, a living soul. Hebrew word is nephesh, which has been defined in the dictionary as a strange little bundle of desires and feelings and thoughts and actions, the sum of what you are. The idea is there was, all the matter was there, the dirt, the dust, the clay, it's all there, and God added something and now it was something new. And that thing was living. That thing was Adam. Right? Adam doesn't have some soul separate from himself. It is a description of who Adam is. My soul is me. My soul is I. My soul is the conversation I'm having with you right now. It's the person talking to you. It's the sum of all the things I choose and all the things I feel, all the desires, all of my history, all that I've been, all that I've not yet become. It's the whole story of Ben. That is the soul. The living me. In the Old Testament, more often than not, the word for soul is just translated as life, which I actually think would be a better translation. Because soul gives us this Casper idea. But it's you, the being alive part of you. Behold, Ezekiel said, all souls are mine. The, son of the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. See the point there? All the life in the world belongs to God. God gives life. God breathed into you. God says, that's my breath in your lung. Even when you blaspheme and curse God, you are using His air to do it and His life to accomplish it. It's His breath in our lungs. But that's you, right? That's, he says, that's you, that you, that thing you think is yours and only yours and belongs to you and you'll do with what you want. He says, even that belongs to me. Father belongs to me. The Son belongs to me. And if you choose other than me, you die. If God is giving you life and you say, I don't want God, what else is there? Nothing but death. You've chosen not to live. Life belongs to God. And I don't mean that hypothetically. I don't mean that out in, uh, metaphorically, like the, the, the butterflies and the flowers belong to God, but you, your own thing, don't worry about it. Are you alive? If the answer is yes, that belongs to God. All souls, all life, all everything that you are is His. And sin, then is not some arbitrary breaking of rules. It is the choice to seek life without God the giver of life. 
All that life is mine, he says. And if you choose against it, there's nothing but else but death. It's the only other possibility. That was literally the meaning of this text. Back in Mark chapter 8, do you notice that he started out talking about life and then almost in the same breath talks about soul and he means the same thing by it. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He didn't change subject. It's the same subject. He says, you want life? He says, you've got to stop giving it away. You've got to stop trading it for lesser goods. You have to understand what it is. If you try to keep your life, you will lose it. If you try to keep this soul to yourself, to make it your own, to say, I want God to have no part of it, God is the only thing keeping you together. And when you vote him out, what do you think you are? This is the first choice that God gave us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. We're in the Garden of Eden. God's making all kinds of trees. He said, I gave you two trees. And you have a choice. The tree of life in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Life the soul living and living abundantly in the presence of God, communing with Him, sharing with Him, having your desires exist and be satisfied beneath Him. Life. He says, or you can go your own way. You can decide you know better. You can decide that you would make better choices. You can decide that you would understand your choices better. You can choose to make your way in this world without me. You can choose the whole world and give up life. And of course, that's exactly the choice we made. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Why? Because you didn't choose life. You chose against it. You chose the other thing. You chose to make your own way. Not the way of God. It has to be a way of death. We choose independence from God every day. God says, this is what's good for you. This is what's best. This is how to be alive. And we say we know better. And every time we choose that, we choose death. Because there's no alternative. It's not a penalty. It's not that God is throwing a tantrum in heaven saying, if you don't do what I tell you, I'll strike you dead. God is saying, I'm the one making you alive. If you don't want me, there isn't other aliving. There's nothing else to be had. It's like saying, I want to breathe, but I really detest oxygen. What else do you want? There's not a lot of options. I'm really hungry, but I'd rather not have any food. What do you want? There aren't any other options. God is keeping you alive. God is your life. He is the sustainer of your life. You have very breath. So when we think of this text in that way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? If you give it up. Here's the crazy thing about that verse. When read in that context of the story of the Bible, Jesus is not suggesting that that's a bargain you might make someday. He is reminding you that you already have. Every one of us from Adam forward made the choice to choose this world and its independence and its goods and whatever we have 
and we traded away our life for it. He's not saying one of these days the devil's going to come to you and he's going to offer you the whole world in exchange for your soul. Don't make that deal. What he's telling you is you already have. And how's that working out for us? We walked away from God with our first choice and built a world around death instead of life. And it's not going well. And we're independent and we're free and we're more knowledgeable and we're clever. And it's killing us. We've got so clever we can't even talk about the problem. Tried to change the idea of it. But it's there. It's killing us. We have already traded our life away for the world. And I'm quite convinced that's why Jesus is so angry. Jesus says, I have to follow God to the cross and obey Him. Peter says, don't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because that was the choice that got us into this mess. That was the choice. The fact that we had chosen in that way is the reason Jesus has to die. And now Peter's saying, go make that choice all over again. Choose something that this life has to offer you rather than true life in God. And Jesus says, I've heard that one before. I was there the day Satan told that lie the first time. And I won't listen to it now. At the cross, we are allowed a refund. This is what Jesus is actually telling us. At the cross, you have already traded your life for this world. And Jesus is saying we can reverse the transaction. But you have to stop making it. Can you imagine? I mean, I know this is a trite analogy, but you go into Walmart, you buy something you really don't like, and you overpay for it. Ever done that? And so, you know, like yesterday, right? We go and we buy something we really don't like and we overpay for it. And so we go back in, we go to the, uh, the help desk, and we take our item, we put it up on the desk, and we say, we'd like a full refund. Uh, and, they, you know, they ask you the standard questions, and it takes you a while. But after a while, they give you cash money right into your hand, dollars and cents, exactly everything you traded. And you take that money, and you turn and you look in the store, and you say, yeah, I could buy it again. And you go back to the shelf and you pick up an identical one. And you go and you buy it again. Clearly Walmart's fault, right? No. That's you. And that's what we're doing every day. Jesus tells us in the garden and every day since, you have traded your life in exchange for what this world had to offer. And at the cross, Jesus redeemed. You know what the word redeemed means? literally means to buy back. God bought it back. God redeemed. He refunded you the transaction. He reversed the crime. And what do we do? We say, well, it wasn't that bad, was it? We go and do it again. And that's the nature of the question. What would you give in exchange for your soul? What have you already given? And has it worked out for you? That's terrible. So stop making that purchase. You see the combination of ideas now? It's not enough to say Jesus has reversed the sin that I've committed. It's not enough to say Jesus has bought me back if my intention is to go and do it all over again. Jesus says, of course I'm going to die for you. Of course I'm going to buy you back. But now there is a cross that you have to carry. You have to stop making that choice. You have to stop turning away from life 
and start turning toward it. What we are commanded then and what we are taught is that the cross is not merely something did Jesus did for you. If it was only that, that would be enough. I mean, that'd be amazing, but that's not all it is. It is also Jesus teaching you how to live. That the bargain we have already made was a bad one. How bad? Enough that it killed Jesus to reverse it. And that now we have to take up our cross and learn how to live differently. There's a reason baptism plays center stage in the drama of Christianity because it's reenacting of that message. In the garden, we made a choice and we reached for something that wasn't ours and it killed us. In baptism, we put that part of us to death and we say we want the life that Jesus made possible, the life that comes only after the cross and not before it. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, your Son taught us many hard things, challenges to ourselves and our expectations. We pray, Father, that you would help us learn the deep things of your Son, that we would stop taking his offer without its price, that we need to understand that the cross is a gift, but not merely a gift. It is a way of living and dying find ourselves in you. Help us in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be that this has made you think about your life and that there's some part of your life that you recognize needs to die. You look at the transaction you've already made. Christ has died to make it possible for that transaction to be reversed. We want to talk to you about it. We want to help you to respond. Whether that's finding this thing in your life that's killing you and trying to work through it, or maybe it is, in fact, stepping into that story, the great drama of Christianity, of death and then life. Whatever it is we can help you to do, we'd encourage you to come and let us know or respond to us in any way. We're going to stand and sing, and we'd love to help you.